You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. On today's episode of Everyday Evidence, we're joined by Carol Siebert, who is the president and founder of the Home Remedy Occupational Therapy and an adjunct instructor at Winston-Salem State University in North Carolina. In addition to your clinical research and entrepreneurial experience, you, Carol, were selected as a representative of the American Occupational Therapy Association for the National Quality Forum, or NQF, Action Team on Person-Centered Medication Safety in 2021, and were selected to be a presenter of the team's brief. Uh, So we are very excited to have someone with so much experience and expertise on the show and want to jump right in to discuss your role on this team, how you brought an OT lens to the work, and how you've used evidence in this project and throughout your career. Um, but first off, a big thanks for being on the show today. Great. Thanks, Matt. I'm really glad to be here. Absolutely. So AOTA is a member of the National Quality Forum and collaborates or participates in activities and opportunities throughout the organization. Um, can you kind of share with us and, and give a brief description of what the National Quality Forum is? Sure. The National Quality Forum is a, is a large nonprofit membership-based organization. And if you look at their website, what they'll tell you is their primary function is to catalyze improvements in healthcare. So there are a lot of different kinds of initiatives that NQF is involved with related to improvement in healthcare. It's actually one of the most influential entities in healthcare in the country, and especially related, obviously, to healthcare quality. Probably for most OTs, where they've had the most, or we have had the most um, interaction with what NQF is about, is NQF's initiatives and role in terms of the development and endorsement of both measures and processes for measuring the quality of healthcare. So the kinds of measures that are used in public reporting, like on the Medicare Care Compare website, or measures that are starting to be used in value-based purchasing, um, many of those, and soon all of them, um, will will go through a process of endorsement by NQF, where teams from their membership essentially review them, review the validity of them, um, whether they're actually doable and whether they actually capture quality of healthcare. Catalyzing improvements in healthcare is such an awesome tagline um, and mission statement. Um, how did you find out that you were nominated to represent AOTA on um, the NQF uh, team and what motivated you to accept the position? Wow. Okay. Well, last winter, NQF put out a call to its membership to submit letters of interest for individuals to participate on a person-centered medication safety action team. Um, Julie Malloy, who's the director of quality at AOTA, contacted me to ask if I was at all interested in being nominated. And my response was, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I fully believe that OT brings important contributions um, to the issues related to medication management and medication safety. And so this is really a great opportunity to bring OT into a, a dialogue on this issue. Um, It also helps that I have experience with NQF as I represent AOTA on the NQF Prevention and Population Health Standing Committee. And I also have previous experience representing AOTA on other bodies that are focused on healthcare quality. 
But even with that, um, we knew that getting an OT onto this team was a long shot. Um, we didn't know how many people would be on the team, but we expected that the letters of interest would probably skew towards pharmacists, nurses, physicians, patient advocates, and others that are obviously much more closely associated with medication. Um, so we put together a letter of interest and pulled together everything we could find that I'd ever written or done related to medication, as well as emphasizing the current work that I do working primarily with older adults to manage complex medication regimens. And, and then basically we crossed our fingers. Um, and I guess about a month later, we were notified that I was one of about 25 people that were appointed to the team. So it was, um, which was a very pleasant surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can, I can imagine how excited you must have been receiving that news. Yeah. Um, and, and I just wanted to follow up. Why, why is it so important to have OT representation in NQF forums and specifically on this uh, person-centered medication safety team? I think it's important in, in different NQF bodies, um, regardless of topic, to have OT participation because um, we're about performance. You know, so much of healthcare and the quandaries in healthcare right now, the challenges um, ultimately come down to the behavior and the performance of the people that either have health conditions or are trying to um, avoid developing health, health conditions. And, and our thing is performance. And so I think we're able to bring um, perspectives and information about um, performance and things that influence performance, either positively or negatively. And that often is a perspective or even a, a way of thinking about health and health care and health management um, that isn't present otherwise. And, and, and I, that's certainly the case on this team or with this topic. I've been in so many conversations with people in multidisciplinary teams talking about medication and often the big emphases are adherence and um, and volition. Um, well, th those are sort of the same thing, but um, and also education. And but nobody really stops and says, but what are we really asking this person or these people to do if they have this condition or they take this medication? And yet, often that's where the real problems exist. So I think OT on this team um, was a way to bring that perspective to a team that looks primarily at patient knowledge and patient adherence otherwise. I, I love that perspective and thank you for sharing. I think performance is such a huge factor in, in improving um, outcomes and, and meeting the goals of, of NQF. I want to ask you more about your experience on the person-centered medication safety action team. Um, kind of what what is that team? What was your goal? What was the process like being involved and in, and in working with the NQF in this capacity? Okay. Um, well, I'm, the team's actual formal work has ended with the November presentation and release of the action brief. So I'm going to be speaking in past tense. Um, the team was comprised of 27 individuals um, and they were from a lot of different backgrounds. There were a number of people who were pharmacists working in a variety of care settings um, there were nurses, there were physicians, there were consumer representatives, such as the founder of um, Mothers Against Medic Medical Error. There were entities that consult with pharmacists and healthcare systems. And the whole team was working under the leadership of two co-chairs, 
um, one from the American Society of Healthcare Pharma System Pharmacists and the other from Consumers Advancing Patient Safety. And I want to emphasize that because one thing that was um, probably atypical of this team and I was great, but it doesn't happen a lot of times in healthcare is it included people who represented consumer groups. And as I said, the, the two co-chairs, one was a pharmacist and one was from um, a consumer organization around patient safety. And so that by itself kind of creates a different perspective than just when you have healthcare providers talking among themselves. Um, we also had a great, great support from a team of NQF staff. So we met regularly from last spring through the end of September. We listened to presenters from various places sharing um, evidence sharing initiatives that they had tried. We reviewed information. Um, we discussed issues and priorities and strategies, and that resulted in the action brief that was presented in November. Awesome. That so NQF and this team is is no joke. It sounds like an amazing interprofessional collaboration experience with consumer representation. Um, sounds like all bases were covered. Um, and you mentioned this brief. Uh, which is available on YouTube. Is that correct? Yes. The um, the brief can actually be downloaded from the NQF website. Um, and then there's the presentation. It was about an hour. It was actually a conversation with some of the members of, of the team, including myself, where we talked a little bit more about our process and went into detail with some of the issues and some of the recommendations or objectives um, that we had that came out from our work. Absolutely. We'll we'll go ahead and link uh, the NQF website uh, to this episode. Um, and Carol, you mentioned you uh, assisted with the presentation of the brief um, after what you said being a, a, a long shot to have an OT on the team. Um, you were even selected to to represent the team um, in this national presentation, uh, which is amazing. So kudos to you for representing our profession really well. I want to focus now a little on how the team was able to use evidence to inform their outcomes and and inform this brief uh, that was um, shared. How did you sort through and use evidence throughout this process? Sure. Um, I, I, we used evidence from a lot of different sources to dig into the issues. Um, for this team, safety was deliberately defined, excuse me, really broadly. So we looked at issues related to adherence, to misuse, to adverse events, and a, and a whole host of, of other issues. Um, we had presenters come to us with evidence from various local initiatives focusing on medication safety. Um, we considered evidence that was drawn from journals from various disciplines. Um, but we also considered the broad and deep experience and expertise of our team. Our, our work was very much a synthesis of of, of best available evidence and clinical judgment. In fact, it's interesting as I, as I think about this, um, you know, Sackett's original three pillars of evidence-based practice focused on um, best available evidence, um, patient pre preference or choice, and, and clinical judgment. And that really was uh, part of what was going on in this team. In fact, it was interesting because I think originally there were some areas that were identified as, quote, pain points that were sort of selected originally to sort of structure our discussions as we moved through topics. And it was interesting that sort of morphed because we kept coming back to some of the same issues that weren't necessarily originally identified, but were around things like um, 
communication and patient engagement or misaligned financial incentives, or even just um, problems in communication among providers, not even where even providers don't necessarily know um, what medications a patient is taking. So um, again, it was sort of a process of taking the best available evidence, um, bringing in that clinical judgment, and then also trying to we did, I think, keep a very strong focus on um, respecting patient preferences and patient engagement and, and patient choice um, in the recommendations that we made. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field. Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description. And support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. Thank you for sharing uh, uh, some insight into that process. It's really interesting to me. I think evidence-based practice is typically seen as a way for practitioners to gain new insights into potential interventions or, or their day-to-day work with with clients. Um, but your example really illustrates how you can use evidence-based practice and principles of evidence-based practice to generate systematic, large-scale changes, um, which is so interesting to me. How, Carol, were you specifically able to bring evidence related to habits and performance factors um, to the team? It's almost, you know, I mentioned earlier that in almost every, excuse me, interprofessional discussion that I've been in related to medications, it seems that other professionals look at this topic a lot through the, the lens of knowledge and adherence or volition and not about performance. Um, but unfortunately, when performance does get attention, it's usually when there's an obvious limitation, like an individual has um, low vision or they have low literacy, and that contributes to adherence. But, you know, from an OT perspective, obviously, there are many barriers to performing activities. Um, and so I, I knew that I wasn't sure initially how to raise that issue and how it aligned with some of the topics we had identified but then in, in one of our early meetings, a pharmacist who works in a primary care practice was describing how much time he spends working with patients who face all kinds of barriers to being able to take their medication and have complex medication regimens. And it, it wasn't that he was complaining about it. He was trying to make the team aware that this is a big issue. And he's fortunate that in the center he's in and with the funding that's available for him, he's able to do that, but that he sees that as a really big problem. And that created really a perfect opening for me to bring up this issue. Um, And so I followed up with his comment. I mentioned the work that Jacqueline Schwartz has done. Um, She essentially did an activity analysis that identified more than, I think it's more than 35 discrete tasks that a patient has to perform in order to, to manage their medication. And that includes everything from negotiating a prescription with the provider to getting it filled Um, being able to dispense and administer the medication, following an appropriate dosing schedule, 
monitoring for um, side effects or evidence that the medication is not working, and then anticipating and obtaining refills. There's lots, lots of activities and lots of places where things can go wrong. And so I pointed out that, you know, it's easy to assume that most patients, at least adults, have the skills to do those activities, but we really can't make those assumptions. And the pharmacist sort of jumped on my response and showed, you know, he was like in full agreement. It was like, that's the problem he's dealing with every day. So from there, it was, I could move to the topic of habits because at, at least as important as having the skills to manage your medication effectively, we also have to consider how a person's existing habits support or don't support taking medication, as well as how um, having to take medications or having a certain medication regimen can it can disrupt existing habits. So I cited some of the habit science literature to make the point that habits really even trump good intentions a lot of the time, and then gave some specific examples from my own practice, including one actually with a patient that I was working with that week. I know that's a long answer. But um, I, 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 I want to elaborate a little bit on that, that last comment. It goes back to something I said earlier. Um, there's a term that meteorologists use, maybe other people use it. The term is ground truth. And when you hear it most often, it's in situations where there's like a tornado on radar, but the only, the only evidence of it is the radar. And a meteorologist will talk about that they're waiting for ground truth. They're waiting for people in the vicinity to actually report what they're seeing or not seeing. And um, I think a lot of times, you know, I was mentioning earlier that as OTs, when we talk about performance and what our knowledge is there, um, often that's ground truth. Um, that's a way to, to bring that perspective into a discussion. And and that's what the pharmacist was doing. He had a very different language for describing it, but I was able to support the issue he was bringing up and then elaborate on it in terms of you know, what it takes to actually produce performance and not just produce performance, but performance that may have to happen multiple times a day, often for the rest of a person's life. And, and so that's where you know, it's not just about skills, but it is also about habits. And so... I, there's a, you know, I, I think sometimes we as OTs minimize the value of that information um, because it looks so common sense or it looks like anybody could come up with the same information. And yet, uh, you know, the, the basis of what we do is really about thinking about how people um, perform daily activities, how um, factors can change that performance or disrupt that performance and also what kind of factors are necessary in order for that performance to be sustained. And that was really what was going on in that meeting. Yeah, absolutely. That, that meteorology metaphor is, is wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think it really applies across um, the context and, and settings as well, where um, medical professionals are aware of these problems. Um, but many times, you know, OT can fill the role of really identifying where the disconnect is with those habits and with those performance factors. Um, so thank you so much for, for sharing that insight. Um, were, were there other ways that, that you were able to present what OT's role within this initiative um, is? And, and was there additional evidence you used to support it? Or, or would you say that really sums it up? Well, like I said, I, I often kept going back to the habit science literature. 
Um, but also, I, I, I think thinking about skill acquisition a different way too. It's interesting that when the topic of skills came up or what can support people to um, to take their medications or to understand them or for them to um, be supported to share with their providers when they're having problems or they don't understand something about their medication, that you know sometimes the issue of adherence aids comes up and, oh, the person just needs a pillbox or, oh, they just need these other things. And there's actually some evidence out there about whether that's really the case or not, um, and also how even when talking about things like that, adaptations have to be tailored to what that person needs. And so I was able to actually cite um, other kinds of literature, and some of it, you know, certainly based in um, or written by OT authors about that whole idea of using adaptive equipment, and that can easily be abandoned, but that it's important not just to um, suddenly think a pillbox is the answer to everything, um, but to find out if it meets that person's needs, because there's plenty of literature out there about people rejecting um, assistive devices and adaptive aids because it doesn't, it's not a one size fits all kind of problem. Um, and so bringing that up as well, because that it's easy to, to think that that's the answer. Well, we'll just simplify it by giving people these tools and then they'll be able to take medication. And um, I have plenty of evidence, even in my own practice, where sometimes those kinds of tools can actually make things worse if there aren't a right fit for the person. I, I love that you were really advocating for, for OT, advocating for uh, person-centered care um, throughout this process. Um, what were the priority challenges that the team identified for stakeholders to address as, as one of the outcomes of this team? Um, well, actually, I'll tell you what, I, I can tell you what the, the challenges were we initially identified, but then I can tell you a little bit more about sort of what what are, what the objectives were that we came out with that we feel like are our recommendations for, that they're actionable recommendations. But the, the initial challenges we identified were um, complicated medication regimens, um, a lack of care coordination and a lack of communication among care teams. Um particularly at transitions of care when people move, say, from the hospital to home or they change providers or they have a new provider. Not enough time and resources in clinical settings to actually um, help patients and their caregivers understand medications and, um, and, and going with that, a lack of access to resources or contacts so that when patients or caregivers have questions or concerns, to know who they should go to and to, to get those resolved or to discuss it. And then something I mentioned earlier that there are misaligned financial incentives that um, there's for as much as we as a society de depend on medications to manage health, um, there are not really good financial incentives to actually support that happening effectively. Um, as, as far as our, um, our recommendations, um, we identified four objectives um, that we feel that stakeholders across healthcare and consumers can sort of partner with to achieve. The first is to build an accurate, beneficial, and comprehensive medication list. Um, and that sounds simple. Um, it's not. But just for everybody to be in agreement with what is this patient taking or supposed to be taking. 
um, providing clear, readable, and understandable medication instructions, educating and empowering patients to be partners in their care, and then prioritizing and investing in person-centered medication safety. And I know at first glance, um, that doesn't sound very OT related, um, but there's actually, I think, a relationship to OT and a role for OT in all four of those objectives. Um, and if you'd like, I can I can explain that a little more. Yes, please. Yes, please. I was wanting to ask you, um, where do you see OT practitioners fitting into addressing these challenges or, or what do you hope they take away from uh, those recommendations? Let's, okay, uh, I'm going to talk ground truth. <laughs> you know, I, I work with folks in the home and I know not all, that not all OTs do. Particularly working in the home, I often discover that patients are taking medications that their providers don't even know about. Sometimes it's something they consider um, a harmless over-the-counter medication. Sometimes it's somebody else's medicine. Sometimes it's an old family remedy. They don't think it's important enough to tell their provider or they assume that their provider knows everything that they're taking. Um, but in so many instances, what those things they were taking that the provider didn't know about is what was contributing to their falls or their disorientation or sometimes even their trips to the emergency department. I think even when OTs are not working with patients in the home, those sort of casual conversations we have with patients that are actually truly intentional conversations during an evaluation or while we're doing an intervention can help to identify things, um, medications that patients are taking. And that's not just oral meds. It can be something they're applying to their skin. It can be you know, drops they're putting in their eyes. There are all kinds of things. We, we tend to focus on oral medications, but a lot of times things that patients are doing and thinking it's helping their health are not necessarily something they put in their mouth. Um, but it's not on their medication list. And it's those kinds of conversations where OTs often can recognize things that patients don't necessarily tell their providers. I think one of the most common ones that OTs run into in any setting are patients that are on diuretics, but they are not taking the diuretics very often or taking them at all because they're concerned about having toileting accidents. And so when their provider or their provider's nurse is saying, are you taking your medication? That sort of puts them on the spot. And more times than not, they will say yes, even if the yes is hardly ever. Um, and so I think OTs, because we deal with daily activities and we talk to patients about their activities, there are ways to find out about how people are managing their medication, what they're taking, what they understand about their medicine, that we wouldn't, that their providers won't know by interrogating them. Um, and that also relates to the second objective. Um, while we don't typically provide medication instruction, our focus is on performance and our ability to analyze activity. And so when you look at that, that second objective that says provide a clear, readable, and understandable medication instruction, um, there's an adjective missing there that's sort of assumed, and that's doable. You know, that, that it, the assumption is if you provide clear, readable, and understandable instructions, people are going to be able to follow those instructions. But that's where our expertise in analyzing activities and synthesizing activities comes in, because if that person has limitations in being able to understand the instructions, or more than that, they understand them, but they're dealing with um, limitations in being able to enact those instructions, 
that's where our expertise comes in to support them being able to take their medications. They might need assistance to perform some tasks. They might need modifications or adaptations to the task. They might be able to perform some aspects of medication management, but might have to depend on someone else to perform others. That's where our expertise is. And, you know, taking medication is a daily activity. I know the OTPF has relocated health management activities in the current version, but medication man managing your medication is still a daily activity. And in terms of bringing our expertise in terms of analyzing activities and identifying ways for um, activities to be adapted or supported so that a person can perform them, it shouldn't make a difference whether the activity we're analyzing is putting on your socks or accurately administering insulin. We can design and we can implement adaptations to those activities just as we do with other ADLs and IADLs. Um, I'm going to keep going through the objectives. Um, yeah, please do. This okay. is wonderful. Um, well, you know, the third objective mentions empowering patients and caregivers to manage their own health. Um, I want to use an example. Last week, I, I'm dealing with a patient who has really complex health conditions. And he said, well, you know, I keep seeing the doctors, but it doesn't seem like I'm getting any better. And he has poorly controlled diabetes and heart disease. There's a, a phrase I saw probably first 12, 13 years ago from the California Healthcare Foundation that said that 90% of managing a chronic condition has to be done by the person with the condition. And so I'm seeing this gentleman because his endocrinologist has put him on a really complex medication regimen that clearly exceeds his, his abilities and he lives alone. So it's not like there's somebody else that's gonna be able to help him with this. Um, but anyway, when he made that comment, I responded and I said, well, you know, most of managing your diabetes depends on what you do between those doctor visits. And so that's why I need to know a little more about how this is going with what you're eating, whether you're checking your blood sugar, whether you're taking your medicine and your insulin. Um, and, and that really clicked for him because up to that time, what he was telling his endocrinologist was basically what he thought she wanted to hear. Um, but he was really struggling at home. So part of that empowerment is him being able to tell his doctor that what she's expecting is really beyond what he can do especially because he also has limited literacy and numeracy as well as vision problems. And so I, and some habits that also are a little different than what his caregiver would expect in terms of what his lifelong habits are for when he eats his meals. And so I can certainly support him by sharing that information with his provider, but just helping him to understand that you know, if this isn't working for you or you're struggling to do this and it still feels like you're not getting anywhere, it's important for your doctor to know that because this isn't the only way that, you know, there may be other ways to address this or ways that are simpler for you or that fit better in what you're able to do. Um, and I think that's important because otherwise patients kind of feel like, well, you know, it's all my fault if I can't do this. And yet sometimes I, I deal a lot with people that are taking anywhere from 12 to 25 medications a day, as many as five and six times a day. And that's not that uncommon when you start getting into three and four and five chronic conditions and different specialists all prescribing things. And, you know, on the face of it, it's just amazing that anybody would think that anybody could do that. Um, so supporting that patient and, 
and also advocating with the provider for a regimen that's actually going to be doable for that patient. Um, I'm going to hit the last objective and then I'll stop. Um, (laughs) But that last one is um, about um, investing in, um, in the systems and supports that are needed to support patient centered medication safety. Um, during another discussion that our team had, somebody said, well, nobody's going to pay pharmacists to spend the kind of time required to sit down with every patient and figure out how they're going to manage all their meds. And um, I I said, well, you know, occupational therapy is already a covered service under Medicare and most insurances and OTs usually address problems with daily activities. So that doesn't mean OT is the be all and end all in this, but that we are a service that already exists that that is covered to address daily problems with daily activities and so we can be a part of that solution when we're already covered and maybe a service that patient already qualifies for obviously you know i'm biased towards the home i've spent my entire career working with people in the homes and it's obviously going to be easier to address those things when you're in the patient's home in the environment where they have to address their their medications but that doesn't mean there aren't other settings as well where we can help to support this. Um, and like I said, where in most cases, or at least in many cases, OT is already a covered service, um, doing the things that the pharmacist really isn't necessarily equipped to do when it comes down to figuring out how you're going to adapt this to make it workable for any given patient. So I think we fit there too. Absolutely, Carol. Thank you so much. Those recommendations and uh, applications um, are, are so helpful for our listeners. Um, and you were really able to, to advocate for occupational therapy and, and illustrate how OT fits into medication management um, and addressing these habits and, and overall performance of, of clients so well, um, which is, is amazing for our profession and, and for um, NQF. Uh, what advice or recommendations could you give to listeners to help them as well recognize and take advantage of, of advocacy opportunities like that? Um, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I think the most important part of advocacy is understanding the needs and interests of other stakeholders. Um, most importantly, your, if, if, if there is such a thing, your target audience for advocacy, um, you know, the action team was formed to address patient-centered medication safety, not to promote OT. Um, and so I knew to be effective there, I had to be completely invested in the purposes and the goals of the group. Um, as an OT, I had experience and perspectives that other members didn't have. Um, and I know that probably most of them didn't expect that there would even be an OT on the team or in some cases even knew what an OT was. Um, but I, I think one of the challenges in a situation like this is, um, is, is to kind of relax about the issue of advocating for OT and be really invested in the problem that the team is trying to address. And I think as I identified myself as an OT and I spoke credibly from my perspective as an OT and brought um, information that otherwise had not been part of the discussion, um, that builds credibility and it builds respect for the OT. I never expected, and I didn't know how many people were going to be part of the presentation that, that, that in November. Um, 
And I was absolutely flabbergasted when I found out that I was going to be one of three members of the team, along with the two co-chairs doing that. Um, and that certainly wasn't my goal. My goal was to be part of the team and bring an OT perspective. Um, but I think ultimately that that built credibility for the information that I was sharing and how it related to the purposes and the goals of the team. And that's what ended up having me be a part of that. So I, I think I think sometimes we're so quick to say, oh, we got to advocate for OT. And I, I think sometimes the best advocacy we can do for OT is to share our ground truth, share our evidence, um, speak knowledgeably about what this topic means in terms of people's day-to-day -day performance of their habits, how it affects their lives or how their other things in their lives affect their ability to deal with a given problem related to their health. Um, and that ultimately is, I think is really effective advocacy because it's what people remember. Um, and not and not worry about you know we've got to get in there and wave the flag for OT because ultimately I think um, if we're doing those things, it's going to make the connection. People are going to know that that's what OT is about. I love that. I love that, and I think that's absolutely correct, Carol. The the best way to advocate for OT is to be a good OT. Yeah. Um. And and let that that speak for itself. Um. Thank you again for sharing uh, all of this and um, about your role on this NQF team um, and your experience there. Um, I do have some more kind of general questions now. Sure. Um, might be a little shift in the interview, um, but I want to ask you um, what role the the process of translating evidence into practice has played in general throughout your career. Um, that that's actually a really cool question. Um, because the short answer is it's sort of been my career. Um, I, I've been an OT now for 33 years. I've spent the entire, my entire career working with people in their homes. I started out working in home health care. And, um, and I was able to use evidence in different ways when I was in home health. But about probably almost 20 years ago now, um, because of some different things in my life and with my health, I really needed to step away from home health, but I still wanted to work with people in their homes. And what's given me opportunity to do that has really been about using evidence. Um, about 20 years ago, I was contacted to be part of a team at a local um, academic medical center that was, they were trying to put together an outreach to um, older adults and subsidized housing in a local community. And I was asked to be part of it because of my expertise in home modifications. But as I met with this team and heard about what they were trying to create, um, I saw that there was more opportunity for OT than just dealing with assistive devices and home modifications. And so I used, I, I went into a meeting with the Well Elderly Study, which is now 25 years old, but at that time was fairly new and, and started sharing about some of the other kinds of things that occupational therapy could be doing with this population and helped to write the grant proposal for the OT role that was based on that. Um, as it turned out, two years later, when they actually got funding for OT, the program had morphed into home-based primary care, but I was able to find some other evidence related to OT's role and 
ended up filling that position. It wasn't full-time, but I've been doing that for the last 18 years, and that got me into home-based primary care. Um, there are some other things that I do with a community organization that are related to home repairs and home modifications, but I've been able to sort of integrate the literature that's out there about um, social determinants of health, about um, fall risk, and about uh, health risks in the environment as a way to create an OT role within that organization. And in fact, we just got some additional um, funding for a particular health outreach that'll go with rehabbing houses in one of the counties where we serve. Um, so, you know, most of my career has been about getting um, getting a role on teams or projects or organizations where either they didn't even know what OT was or where they only knew OT solely as rehab for acute neurological or orthopedic insults. Um, and it's really been about using evidence every time has been critical to demonstrating that OT had a role in a program or with a population that really had not been recognized before that time, at least all among that team. Absolutely. It, it sounds like evidence has played a, a large role um, in your career and in your, your home-based practice um, and, and in developing the, the home remedy. Would you like to share with us more about, about the home remedy, um, this, this home-based practice that you started, um, and maybe share some additional stories or examples of, of implementing evidence um, in, in your practice? Um, sure. Well, the home remedy is, is mainly me. <laughs> um, I, um, well, I've, I've been pretty upfront in the OT community, but I have a chronic condition. I've had Crohn's disease almost my entire life. And, um, and so my health got to the point where I couldn't work full time. I wanted to work in, in the home or I, I wanted to keep working and working with clients in the home. And so my practice is called the home remedy because that's where I work, but also because so much of OT is about using the everyday to support health and to support performance. And, you know, and that's sort of the connotation that home remedy has. It's mostly me. Occasionally I've been able to use some contractors for different projects and things like that. But um, most of what my practice is about is supporting people to be able to stay in their homes. It's mostly older adults, but not exclusively. Um, I do want to share a story um, because I, I know I've mentioned habits a couple times, but I think this is kind of interesting. One of the ways that I got involved in the organization that does home repairs and home mods um, initially was because of referrals they got for people that needed work done on their homes who had significant um, disabilities and so might have needed a ramp or needed um, other adaptations for accessibility. But um, where that role has kind of changed is a recognition that when you're changing, when you're doing things in people's houses, even in homes that are in very poor repair and creating health problems for people, um, it's still their home and their, and their habits are very much um, embedded in that environment. And so when you're working for a nonprofit and they're doing these repairs and modifications and you want to know you're getting the best bang for the buck for people, it becomes really important to do a very person-centered process of assessing what the needs are 
um, and what's important to the person so that what's being done in their home is really going to work for them in the short term and in the long term. And um, so let me share a story that I, I just kind of like because it illustrates this. Um, we were doing a home assessment a while back with a, a lady. She was an older woman and she had her teenage granddaughter living with her. And as we were discussing the repairs she needed, I asked about if there were any activities that were giving her problems. And she mentioned that she had really bad arthritis and she loved to soak in the tub, that it really helped her knees feel better. Um, but she'd had a fall related to the tub and had pretty much given up getting in the tub that she either needed a sponge bathe or have her granddaughter help her get in and out. And so she kind of looked at us and said, you know, maybe if we could help her get a walk-in shower, um, that that would help. And I, I caught the expression of the, the increased construction manager's face. He was with me. And I know that converting a tub to a walk-in shower in a 30-plus-year-old mobile home is almost impossible. Um, it, it, it's doable, but it's a big deal. And it's not always doable. But, you know, but the other thing was I heard her voice change between when she was talking about how much she loves soaking in the tub and her question about maybe we could take out the tub. And so I asked her if she'd prefer a tub or a shower, if we could come up with a way for her to get in and out of the tub safely and be able to soak her knees. And, you know, her immediate response is, yes, I, I would want to take the bath. Um, so instead of tearing out the tub, we got her a battery operated hydraulic lift seat. Only after we verified it would also be possible for the granddaughter to move it out of the way because there was only one bathroom in the house and the granddaughter liked taking showers. Um, and, and so I tell that story and you could say that's totally about you know, that's just preference. What does evidence have to do with that? Um, well, there's a concept in habit science that talks about friction, and it, it has to do with increasing friction to discourage an undesirable habit or reducing friction to facilitate modifying or establishing a new habit. Um, and if you apply that in this situation, if we took out the tub, it would have forced her to change her lifelong preferred way of bathing. It also would have forced her to find a new way to relieve the pain in her knees. Um, and so it would have increased friction, even though on the surface, it would look like it decreased risk. You know, there was a really good chance that she'd end up regretting the decision to give up the tub for the walk-in shower. So this wasn't just about what her preference was, but looking at what was her lifelong habit? You know, why, why was it important to her? Um, you know, it wasn't just that she liked to soak. She really associated that with getting relief for her knees. So now she can soak in her tub anytime she wants. She doesn't need any assistance. Um, we were able to support her preference and her habit. And it actually turns out her granddaughter will just sit on the seat and take a sit down shower and sometimes even uses the lift to lower herself in for a bathtub. So we also avoided creating friction for the granddaughter by, um, by putting this in the bathtub. Um, and in fact, she, um, we did a demo video of her using this so that we can show other folks when we run into situations where they might benefit from a device like this. And she was like, yeah, you know, I love this. I'd be glad to do a video. Um, so, you know, there's a, a, like I said earlier, there's a body of evidence out there that recipients of assist devices or home mods abandon or regret the devices, um, even if it might reduce assistance or risk. And we don't really know why. But, you know, habit science suggests that that disruption of longtime habits is an important factor. 
um, most of what we do, especially around the home is driven by habit and not by intention or conscious attention. So my takeaway is we need to consider not only preference, but the degree of habit disruption when we make recommendations for clients or patients, not just for that client or patient, but for everyone else who lives in the home who could be affected by what we're recommending or proposing. Absolutely. Thank you, Carol. That's a, a, a wonderful story that really uh, paints a great picture of, of OT's role um, and the importance of, of addressing habits um, and, and being informed uh, in regards to um, evidence and, and providing person-centered care. Um, so thank you so much. And I'm sure you have so many of these stories and we could talk about them all day. Um, I, I want to ask you, as someone who has developed a, um, a, a unique career path, do you have recommendations or tips for practitioners who are seeking to expand beyond traditional OT practice, but aren't yet sure of the niche they want to pursue? Yeah. Um, I, I think one of the most important things is to go where the unmet needs are. Um, my, my practice and my career has evolved as I recognize unmet needs that OT could bring expertise to address. And that's actually kind of what this committee was about too. Um, you know, if somebody had told me 20 years ago what my practice would look like now, I probably would have totally disagreed with them. But that evolution has really been about where are the opportunities to bring OT into a conversation and into a service um, where the needs are really big and there aren't a lot of good ways to, to solve them. Um, I, I have a chronic condition and I won't say that's unrelated to doing it, but to me, the really compelling argument is that in this country, one in two people have a chronic condition and one in 10 have diabetes. So that's a pretty compelling unmet need. But, um, but I think there are other numbers that are, that are relevant. Um, census, to, I've worked mostly with older adults, so I'm going to talk about that. But um, U.S. Census data indicates that fewer than 6% of older adults live in residential care facilities. Okay, so 94% of older adults are living in the community, mostly in their own homes. But 30% of the OT workforce, that's OTs and OT, even a higher percentage of OTAs than 30%, work in long-term care. So we're concentrated on addressing the needs of the 6%. And there are very few of us that are out addressing the needs of the 94%. So I know there are challenges with payment outside traditional settings, and I won't minimize that for a minute. But I think that we have valuable perspective and valuable expertise to bring to some of the really thorny unsolved problems that are out there in health and human services in this country. And I, some of it is, you know, we need to use the evidence. We need to understand what our ground truth is and how it relates to some of these unmet needs. But what I would say is, you know, look at where the needs are that are not being met and how OT can bring something to that. And then follow your passion because it, like I, to me, what appeals to me about OT is practical problem solving and unlimited opportunities for creativity. And so every time I've had those opportunities, it's given me an opportunity to do program development, to create something new, but to focus on practical problem solving at the same time. And so I think the first step is where are the unmet needs? And then the second is, 
where can you then um, really follow your passion while addressing an unmet need that particularly appeals to or resonates with you or where you feel like you already bring expertise and perspective that's relevant to that problem. Thank you, Carol. That's that's a wonderful formula to help uh, guide listeners who may be um, wanting to to expand their their scope of practice, um, and and a truly empowering message. I'm feeling pumped up, like you just gave me a pep talk <laughs> over here. Um, I just have have two more questions now for you, Carol, um, to to really wrap things up. Um, first, being what additional resources would you recommend to our listeners who want to learn more about medication management or any of the topics that we've covered today? Okay. Um, well, the action team brief, um, you'll have the, the, the link to the NQF website, but there's an hour long, um, webinar. And then there's also the brief, which is a document. Um, I think related to that, because I know that there are OTs that, um, will say, you know, I don't know that I really feel comfortable with dealing with medications. AOTA has an official document. It's AOTA's it's a position paper on the role of occupational therapy and medication management. And that's available from the AOTA website. And then um, I've mentioned habit science several times. Um, there's a, a book, it's titled Good Habits, Bad Habits, The Science of Making Positive Changes That Stick. And it's um, by a habits researcher whose name is Wendy Wood. Um, the book is sort of a distillation of habit science evidence, and it's very readable. It's very relatable. Um, and like I said, she's one of the top habit scientists in the world. Um, I personally think the book should be required reading for every OT, um, but it's available as an audiobook and on Kindle as well as in print. And I think it's, as I've gotten into this literature, it's totally changed the way I think about what I do as an OT. Um so those are, I think, some good resources to look at. And those are wonderful resources. Thank you so much. I actually uh, am a part of a book club, so I think I'm going to add uh, Good Habits, Bad Habits by Wendy Wood uh, to my list there okay. and uh, get around to it as well. Um, last question for you, Carol. We call this our, our golden nugget segment um, to really sum things up. Um, you've already shared so much with us today, but if you could share one piece of knowledge or a recommendation to practitioners, what would you say? Oh, wow. Um, be willing to question what you do. Um, does it make a difference for your clients and will it make a difference three months or a year from now? Um, evidence is relevant when it challenges and, su and supports us to provide OT that really matters. And so, you know, being willing to question what I do is what compels me to be willing to learn, to be willing to modify what I do, to relinquish some tools and replace them with new tools as the evidence leads me there. Um, but it's really so that I can make a sustainable difference for the people that I serve. So that nugget for me would be to be willing to question what you do and be willing to or be open to how you could do it even more, even better or more effectively. That's a wonderful nugget, Carol, and that that type of questioning can be can be so powerful. Um, so thank you so much for for sharing that and and for your time in this interview. It's been a, a true pleasure. Thank you. It's been great to be here. I appreciate your question. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.